0: Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And Mark Michaelis is going to be here. It's going to be a great show uh, talking about Essential C Sharp, about C Sharp in general and all sorts of other stuff. But how have you been, my friend?
1: I'm, You know, my dog's getting old. The yeah. Zach, the, the bear warrior. So I'm up on the coast place again. So that's why I'm recording with the headset mic. So sorry if it doesn't sound quite the same as in the regular studio. But got a few days up here, and I took him on a walk yesterday to Skookumchuck Narrows. Skookumchuck Narrows? It's a great name, <laughs> huh? Skookumchuck Narrows. So this is a place, a narrowing of the of the waters through the peninsula. And so f- four times a day, you have two ebb tides, two flow tides. And it, this time of year, there happens to be these very strong tides. And so it literally creates these amazing standing waves and whirlpools. Like it's something to see. But it's about a three-mile hike each way uh-huh. and yeah, had to carry the dog back. He just ran out of steam. Wow. He's 13 years old. Karen's lived about 16. Mm. And he's uh, he's thin. Like, he's in good shape. The vet says he's, he's doing great, but I can't take him on a five-mile hike anymore. It's just too much for him. So, Aww. yeah, I carried him back to the car. And he has crashed out out today like he is <laughs> he is on the floor and he is zonked was too much for him the the vet says he's a 75 year old man and he may still be able to run a marathon but only one because <laughs> he's fit but yeah he's an old dog oh, well. so i'm a little you're know, a little sad too it's like my old the dog that treed bears with you know startling routine he's just like mm. he's fading oh well I see him fading it's a new new era I, I intend, when when we lose him, I intend to be a complete wreck. I'm just telling you right now, <laughs> I'll be a disaster. Well, you know, make sure that you give yourselves a few days to grieve before you record a show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll have to, we'll tell Zach stories. Yep. All right. Uh, there he is. He still looks good. He's watching me. You know, he's like, we're, we're going, right? I'm like, dude, you can barely walk. I'm like, <laughs> kill, like, far. Like, we should go. And he's, he's He's ridiculous. All right. That's what I got. Well,
0: let's roll the music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, man, what
1: are we talking about?
0: Well, we're talking about something that we're going to talk about in detail on Thursday's show, but I just can't hold it in anymore. Uh, I have to talk about it. <laughs> it's so cool. It's Platform Uno, and the URL is platform.uno. Now, okay, this is a way to, you know, write once, run everywhere, kind of like, you know, Xamarin Forms is. But the sure. difference is that the XAML flavor is UWP. Interesting. So you take a UWP app and you can run it on Android and you can run it on iOS and right. you can run it on WebAssembly in the browser. Wow. Think about this that for super a minute. Interesting. Just think about yeah. that for a minute. So so the, the challenge with Xamarin Forms, of course, is this totally new and different uh, flavor of XAML, which is only for Xamarin Forms. And, you know, UWP is its own flavor of XAML. And that's where Microsoft is sort of, you know, putting their efforts into UWP. Right. And I would say the reason why UWP isn't as popular as they want it to be is because it's Windows only.
1: Right. You know? But what if it wasn't anymore?
0: What if it wasn't anymore? What if it could go everywhere else? So go to platform.uno, check it out. It's free. Yeah. And we're going to be talking to the guys that wrote it and have been using it. Francois and Jerome have been using it for four years to write their own apps in the app store. So it's it's uh, it's pretty amazing. They, we talked to them at Build. They came up to us. So We actually got a tweet. You guys got to talk to the .NET Rocks guys.
1: And they came over, and uh, it was it was quite impressive. That's what I got. Is it amazing how much stuff is showing up in WebAssembly these days? It's pretty awesome. It just shows <laughs> you know there's something here. We've been talking about it for a while, but all of a sudden, since last June, when when Steve Sanderson introduced us to some possibilities, it's just been. More and more and more. So there's another one. That's really cool. There it is. Awesome, dude. Okay, we'll come back Thursday and we'll listen to some more about it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Uh, We're talking C-Sharp today, so I grabbed a comment off of show 1521, recorded back February 2018. Actually, recorded at NDC in London. We talked to two very nice C-Sharp gentlemen, as you may recall. Yes. Bill Wagner and John Skeet. Yep. And uh, they, they are, those two, I mean, A, they're clearly friends mm. and and so very fun dynamic between them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was a great, great show. And Martin Reinge, who I know has been listening to our show for a long time, but I couldn't find any evidence that we've ever sent him anything, huh. you know, when obviously I'm going to send him a, uh, so I'm kind of embarrassed, right? It's like, wow, guy's been commenting forever. And he wrote this great comment. Uh, and I mean, this is just a few months ago. Uh, thanks for the episode on C-Sharp getting complex. I think this is certainly the case. Lots has happened since 2000. For someone who's been along for the whole journey, I perceive C-Sharp as easy, but for someone starting today, I think it's a, rather different. On what C-Sharp should look like if we had a blank slate, I think I would like that question to be broadened. What should programming look like if we forgot everything we know about programming? Most developers learn some kind of C-style language to begin with and want something that looks similar, whether it's JavaScript or C or Java or C Sharp or C++. But is C-style language is the correct way to go, I like OCaml. All right, Mark, yeah. now I'm confused by you. <laughs> but I'm not certain that that is what programming should look like either. Others swear by Lisp, static or dynamic typing, generics or not, dependency types, should everything be async? Even CPU instructions are basically async these days. Immutability or mutability? I sometimes think that we had little interesting advances in computing science over 40 years ago. Most ideas mentioned on the show were invented before the end of the 70s. Some of the blame might lie with the tools and languages that we use and what they limit how we think about computing. Yeah. Uh, I recently joked at the office that JavaScript might be humanity's last language and that it, we will be programming in that from now on please save us from this bleak vision <laughs> I'm not saying that JavaScript is awful but I think we can do better right and I and I disagree with you completely Martin because I'm pretty sure the last language of humanity is emoji <laughs> and I loathe them but we, sooner or later somebody's going to build an emoji programming language and the poop icon is going to be very very important. <laughs> Uh Also, languages continue – I've got a few f- key thoughts around language. One is languages tend to reflect the hardware at the time. So when you, know, when you go back to the 80s when we were debating functional programming versus object-oriented programming, object-oriented tend to win not because it was a better language but because it utilized the hardware more efficiently. Yeah. We were much more resource constrained back then. These days we think less about hardware because we have so much of it. And that we're now more concerned about things like maintainability and scalability. And suddenly, functional languages are making a huge resurgence because they have more functional elements. They're, they have more naturally scalable, immutable elements uh, that make it easier to uh, consume more resources more efficiently. But uh, in doing research around language, just, we have to remind ourselves, we're still making new languages. Swift was mm. first developed in 2014. Right. Right. You know, they, There are new languages and we are taking clean states and trying these things. They're not widely adopted because our backgrounds, this sort of experience we have, hold us back from jumping wholeheartedly often into these new languages. But I also am fascinated by, and we certainly talked about this before, how many things that we see showing up in C Sharp get reflected back into quote-unquote older languages like C++. Yeah. You know, async await turns out to be a really good idea and it's showing up all over the place. Reactive extensions are showing up all over the place because right. great programming ideas show up in other languages. They naturally mutate to the new techniques of the time. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's done. I don't think 40 years ago was the last thinking around computing science in new languages. I think we're still working on it and still exploring it. And it's fun to sit on the edge and watch what's going on there. Sure is. So, Martin, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or via any of our social media. So we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a Music to Code By. And definitely follow
0: us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We translate them into emoji. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I read. I literally read a paper where a guy saying, the new human language, the 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 cross-culture language is emoji. Back I'm to like, hieroglyphs. I'm, uh, I'm only sad because I'm afraid it's true.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, at some time, people have to open their mouth and speak. And speaking emoji is a whole nother level of problem. I don't know. There's a lot of people, when they open their mouth, all that comes out is poop. So. <laughs> <laughs> there is that, my friend. There is that. <laughs> All right, let's bring on our guest, Mark Michaelis. He is the founder of Intellitecht and serves as the chief technical architect and trainer. Since 1996, he's been a Microsoft MVP for C-Sharp, Visual Studio Team System, and the Windows SDK. And in 2007, he was recognized as a Microsoft Regional Director. He also serves on several Microsoft software design review teams, including C-Sharp, the Connected Systems Division, and VSTS. Mark speaks at developer conferences and has written numerous articles and books. Essential C Sharp 6.0 is his most recent. Mark holds a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from the University of Illinois and a Master's in Computer Science from the Illinois Institute of Technology. Welcome to the show, Mark. Very sorry we haven't had you on earlier. Thank you very much, it's good to be here. Great to have you. What'd you think of Build, Mark? Um,
2: build was good. I'm not a great conference attender, So it's probably not a good question to ask the likes of me because I spend most of the conference in the labs, doing labs or interacting with people and asking lots of questions. I don't do very well attending the talks themselves. I just find that I don't learn so well by the talks themselves. So on occasion, you know, I'll hear a great talk and I'll be truly impressed and excited. But usually, you know, um, I sort of feel like I'd learn it better by sitting in front of my computer and, and actually playing with the technology. So I used
0: the talks for vision casting, but not for learning. Well, that's great. Now, that, that means you have an insight that people who are attending the talks don't have. So what labs were you doing? So this this year, the
2: labs were located in a completely different building. Um, they weren't in the Sheridan. They weren't in the um, primary uh, Washington Conference Center there. They were actually on another floor um, in a different building. Uh, and so a lot, lot harder to find. So most of the time I spent was actually interacting with people. I spent a lot of time with... Um, the PowerShell guys uh, and looking at Linux running on, on Windows. Yeah. Uh, I spent a lot of time talking to the Teams guys. Um, and then, of course, Azure. There was quite a, a fair amount of time talking to Azure. And probably the, the newest thing I looked at was, was sort of new revs of, of Windows, Inc. And, and mm. what it means to do hand recognition and, and uh, image recognition from things that you're
0: drawing. Okay. What was the coolest thing that you saw? at build the coolest thing that I saw at build um
2: boy that's a question I, I'm not very good at coolest or you know, I can say cool <laughs> but coolest is a hard question because then you feel like you're judging other people as not it being so cool Oh, uh, okay
0: well, um, did anything stand out
2: yeah I saw so I really did I really did like um sort of the the drone stuff that they showed um, and what the possibilities there are. I work a fair amount in the utility industry, mm-hmm. and we actually have the need to go ahead and do things like pipeline inspection and and what, and what um, then the idea that you could do computer vision with a drone to recognize anomalies in the pipeline. Um, that's a real-world scenario that I actually have customers um, interested in working on, and we're doing that right now manually where we have to do, geotagging of, of, um, or geotracking of, of people that are walking a pipeline and inspecting it. And the idea that we could sort of automate that with a drone, um, we we'll probably still have to have a human somewhere, but at least that the anomalies could be picked up using computer vision. Right. Um, I've also spent a fair amount of time doing computer vision in the last two or three years. And so seeing how that space is developing, not only in terms of recognizing of people, but recognizing the images, OCR, kinds of problems that we have, um, we recently built an app that did check um, check validation, allowed you to deposit a check remotely, um, and we've done a bunch of uh, things with circuit boards as well, where we've done computer vision type stuff down to a micron. And so it's a very interesting space, and I appreciated seeing what's what's happening in there in that in that arena.
1: The demo that they did around the drone was really interesting because it's like you you know it's easy to fall in that trap of artificial intelligence is going to be Terminator, like it's going to take over everything. Mm. But taking away the human having to fly the drone down the pipeline, right? Just the drone flying along and then stopping at what it thinks is anomaly, but ultimately the human has to look at it and say, "Is it worth dispatching a crew?" So yeah. you still have that human is you're taking away the dull part of the human's work and the you know sort of tricky part of the work and just having them do the assessment. Right. I think that made total sense as a good hybridization between computer vision and drone controls. Mm. Uh, and still keeping the human in the loop. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely correct. And, and
2: part of what's what's important is there's still too much chance of, um, of false positives um, and false neg- negatives, right? There's still a good chance that we can we can eliminate those. And so when we start to get in the world of AI and computer vision, I mean think of the, the automatic cars, um, you know driverless car scenarios, the consequence of being wrong is really high um and trying right. to work through well what does it take for us to say well there is a human involved you still have to sit in front of the steering wheel we're not willing to make it completely autonomous but you can control how close i get to the car in front of me um my foot's still on the brake but it's still um taking away the hassle of pushing the brake going back to the accelerator put back to the brake back to the accelerator back and forth while i'm in rush hour traffic um because i'm in seattle for example so yeah. so mark what excites you about c sharp these days um well, I think the most exciting thing is um, the fact that there's a there's a recognition that that we don't still, still don't have a, a perfect language. You know, we started this in 2000, and it's still not perfect, and we're still willing to continue to grow and improve it. So that's a really high level statement. Um, but there's people who sort of said in passing, "Oh, you know, I think it's good enough." And I and I often speak in front of audiences and ask them. So what fit- feature do you really want in C-sharp? And I'm surprised by the lack of response or the lack of knowledge because people are fairly right. satisfied. Um, and you say, well, if you could have anything, what would it want? And you you you, open, you did in your opening, you talked about new languages and what would they be and what features would they have. It's it's surprising that people are fairly satisfied um, with C-sharp. Uh, and, and, you know, especially you look, you look at JavaScript and all the work that's going into JavaScript and improving JavaScript these days um, it, it's an indication that there's work to be done in C sharp. Well, has that got more to do with where how bad JavaScript is, or is that <laughs> more to do? with... <laughs> well, I, I don't want to say that. Did. You know, it's not. It's not good. It's not good. <laughs> good to knock another language. You know, that's that's not really fair. But I think, it, as you said, it can certainly be improved. Yes. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, but it, it is interesting to think in terms of what most people are doing with the language. They feel the language is as good as it can be. They can't think of anything else. And you know, here is a corollary to that. And I love your insight on this, Mark. Did anybody ask for async await? Exactly,
2: exactly. I, I think I think the real insight and the real thing that's important is I think the C sharp team is listening, and they're not you know solving big programs like Link. Well, in general, they're not. We're not seeing a totally different way to start programming, uh, which I think Link sort of provided, or sort of certainly Genex provided. Um, we're starting to deal with niche problems, but. As we look at the next version of C-Sharp, well, so the point being, at the end of the day, the C-Sharp team is, in spite of the fact that the general community is saying, no, no, I can't think of anything that I want, they are looking at specific problems and going, hey, yes, we should definitely create the ability to return a read-only ref, a return by ref, for example. Um, right. You know, Most of us weren't desperate for that, but for the people who needed it, they really needed it. Mm.
1: And the it C-Sharp team difference. says, hey, we can solve that. I I do think Link's a great example of, I don't know that anyone was asking for Link. They wanted better ways to explore data sets. They wanted terser language around set-based thinking. Yeah. But they certainly didn't articulate it that way, that the vision of great language improvements lives in the heads of relatively few people, of the Anders Heilsbergs and the Eric Lipperts. Yeah. Yeah, the Eric Myers of the world, and that... You know, we're going to struggle as regular mortal developers to even grapple with how they think about those problems and how we're going to take it on. And they do a great job of coming up with incredibly – you think about the underpinnings of Link. We interviewed Eric Meyer on this. It's amazing. His explanations were not trivial to understand, but the code made total
0: sense. Right. Yeah, and you start from how can I take all this code that's very ugly and cyclomatically complex and just reduce it to a couple of statements. That's that's essentially where you start, right? The elegance of Link, even
2: to this day, you know, now we've had Link for more than 10 years. I I continue to be extremely impressed with not only what it gave us, but the few language changes that were made to give you what is essentially Link, right? We're talking about adding extension methods. Yeah, lambdas and everybody. Yeah, I mean it just it wasn't like they radically transformed the language, but the convenience and the simplicity is such that we is as long as you ne- you are not affected by link as long as you never work with collections. Right. But if you happen to have a program that <laughs> have selections, which as far as I know is every single program out there. Are guess it? what? You program differently.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Any kind of list. You have to think about that problem. Mark gives a moment here while we turn to this very important message. Support for .NET
0: Rocks is brought to you by. Conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first packaged set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots are available as part of Telerik's ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, WinForms, WPF, Xamarin, Products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. By implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements. For more information, visit telerik.com
1: conversational-ui. And we're back. Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin. It's .NET Rocks. And actually, it's our first show after Build. We recorded a bunch there, which you've probably been listening to. But right. here it is early June. And we're finally getting to talk to someone, Mark, mm-hmm. uh, about uh, being at Build and, and the things we saw there. But I, I don't want to go away from the fact that, because I'm working on the history of .NET, you know, Dawn signed, like, there was hard work on doing generics right long before there was Link. And I don't even know that Link was in their heads when they were coming up with that they just wanted generics to be right
2: yeah i i i think i think when they started with generics the focus was very much on how to do it in such a way that it didn't handle a, it handled the boxing scenarios so that value types wouldn't always be boxed um and they obviously had a predecessor in java to sort of think about how should be generics be done and they chose not to do it the same way um and that right. was very much driven around the fact that they didn't want to have to box value types when they were placed into a collection. Uh, and they chose specifically to say, we will generate on the fly an underlying type whenever you use generics with a value type versus when we have a reference type where we can use the same instance of the type over and over again rather than generating a type um, underneath the cover. So so I think they made some choices around generics, and I would completely agree with you. The, the driver... for for Link was not, you know, came about, and even the idea that they should have it came about after um, generics. The key driver is, you know, my understanding, the driver for Link was very much around how the heck do we get data out of a database into our app and handle this impedance mismatch between this, you know, referential integrity structure within the database, this relationship, and move into an OO model. And so... We all had ideas of what could be done, but they implemented in a way that was extremely elegant with minor, you know, I think a total of six or seven language changes, and suddenly we have what is Link, and I can do where clauses, and, and I can do selects, uh, and essentially have a
0: SQL-like syntax in an object-oriented world. And I got to just jump in here with something for the newbies, because every once in a while we come up with these... Things that we all know what they are, like boxing and value types and reference types, but not everybody knows because they weren't there in the beginning, and they might, they might just be oblivious to this. But in C-sharp and in .NET in general, so it's also in VB and every .NET language on the framework, you have two different types of, of uh, well, let's call them variables, fields, right? You have a value type, which is generally just a value, a number, that kind of thing. And then you have reference types, which is everything else. Anything that is is an object, so even a string is an object, right? So anything that uh, isn't just a simple value is a reference type. And the difference is that the reference type has a little bit, has a few, as another layer or two of indirection around it, so that it can be passed referentially. And when you're using value types and reference types together. Sometimes a a value type has to be promoted to a reference type, and that's called boxing. So instead of just having an integer, now you have an integer that is essentially a reference type integer. And that process, if you're doing it in a list, you know, in a tight loop over and over again, can be a significant drain on performance. It can be. And so that's what Mark was talking about the boxing. Of, uh, of value types when you use them in lists and that kind of thing. All right. Just a little little, little lesson. Thank you. I appreciate that.
2: And and, and I don't know if you're aware, but if you look at C Sharp.x, 7.x, right? The new the new features that came in C Sharp post C Sharp 0, so 7.1, 7.2, 7.3, they deal with some of these boxing problems because they allow you to pass value types by ref and then have them be read-only and be able to be modified um, such that they can be more efficient, especially when interacting with, with unmanaged code. Uh, and so there's, there's new features in this, in this space that is sort of hard to describe without screens that are helping to continue how to handle value types that need to be passed by reference because mm. they're large, they consume a lot of memory, but we don't want to allow them to be changed by the callee. Right. And so we can pass them as sort of read-only reference types that allow them not to be modified, and yet they still are stored on the stack. Yeah, um, even that is a space where the C Sharp team is making improvements, or has made improvements
1: now since C Sharp seven point three is released. Right. It is interesting that part of that is thinking, and you mentioned this before, about interacting with like essentially non C Sharp code. As I'm connecting out into the world, and my type systems are different, and the behaviors are different. How do I do it in still an efficient way? Exactly, exactly. And, and I
2: think m- the majority of those features are scenarios around managing hardcore memory um, that's coming in from unmanaged, you know, large images or, or, or large arrays that's coming from unmanaged right. that has to be addressed and handled and just can't be done efficiently in an t- entirely managed world without the addition of, of this new sort of read-only ref types. And, and, and they've also got these in-parameters, right? So now you can pass... A, a parameter, as an in-parameter, and so it, and yet it still can't be modified. It's only going in. It can't be modified on the way out.
1: Why is modification so important in that scenario, Mark? Why is it can't be modified as important? So it's a concept that's been in languages for
2: a long time. The concept that, hey, if I pass something to you, I don't expect you to change it. Right. And that's especially important as we get into multi, uh, multi-threading scenarios. We have something being called, and yet it's still accessible by different threads, and we don't want the chance that you would modify it uh, from two different threads simultaneously, and we end up with some kind of memory corruption or a state that gets gets out of sync. And so that's that's probably the large part about it is we're in the world now where you have many processors involved in running and executing of your, your code with multiple threads. And when we pass it around, especially to long-running operations, we don't want the chance that you could modify it. And so we define it in the language of saying, hey, please don't modify this type when I send it to you. You can go ahead and use it. You can look at it. You can read the data in and out. I mean, sort of, you can read the data out, but you may not modify the data in a way that would affect um, another thread that might be accessing it at the same time.
1: And it's not that you ultimately can't modify it, but you have to feed that modification back in a different way.
2: Right. You, well, you can return it and reassign it or something like that. Right. And, and of course, you know, they always said strings were immutable. But I mean, I can write unsafe code that modifies a string, clearly. But but sure. we're looking at normal scenarios of, of writing code within the managed world that's still entirely um, a safe code. So we can now go ahead and even do a stack alloc. We can go do modifications on these ref types that are entirely in managed code with no unsafe uh, unsafe code needed at all.
1: Yeah, it just it. It's interesting to remind yourself that you don't necessarily have control of what kind of processor is running this, how many instances are running, how many yeah. threads are executing. Like a, you don't want to think about that because writing code around that stuff sucks. <laughs> but right. also, it's like you. You don't know those outcomes. So these safe behaviors are about, and you won't need to know as long as you stay in the safe behavior.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. That, that's exactly right. And I think, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's getting better um, and it's getting easier to write code. But the key problem in still today of writing multi-threaded code is testing, and and it's extremely right. difficult to test and make sure you've covered the scenarios. So, you know, writing the code is easy. Writing the code correctly is very hard, and testing the code that it is written correctly is
1: extremely hard. And your customers are always weirder than your testers. They will they will do things you didn't think of. People are weird. Users are weird. <laughs> Weird. (laughs) They just this thing works great. Why did you do that? (laughs) Because I could. You let me. Yeah. We got to block all those scenarios. The cross-platform side of C Sharp is really interesting. Just to think about all those years, all that work that was focused in the Windows space, and in what seems like a relatively small amount of time, suddenly it's just running everywhere. You mean the .NET part of it, right?
2: C Sharp Mm. was like that always. It just matters whether there's a library for it.
1: Right. Yes, you're. You're right. We we talked about C sharp running in other places long ago, but not that Microsoft supported it. But you know, uh, Xamarin did. Miguel did.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's interesting because as you start to write cross platform code, um, you know, you're not focused on one platform. You actually want, you know, like I'll write a library and I'm saying, okay, I intentionally need to make this library work across platform. We still have very fundamental challenges like. Uh, the fact that a new line is different on platforms, and and you've got right. to go ahead and write unit testing for that. You know, it turns out that that seems like it's such a basic problem, and it crops up over and over and then again because your tests fail because you hadn't accounted for you know, the fact that the new line could be different. And sometimes times it is different, and sometimes it isn't different. You got to handle all those all mm-hmm. those scenarios. Um, yeah. And and I say this because you know when I'm writing you know essential C sharp. I write all the, a lot of the code to be console-based, console, console based, but I still want to have unit tests. So I've actually got to redirect the console and have the output come. And I spent a significant amount of time making sure that I could compile cross-platform. That was no big deal. But getting all the tests to work cross-platform, even though it was fundamentally just a difference between whether there was a carriage return line feed or just a, just a line feed, that was that were much more painful than you would think it should be. And then we start getting to the whole, hey, what happens if there's an API call being made and, and all that kind of type of stuff.
1: But even the fundamental things like line feeds are a pain. And that was one of the things that came out of Build is they've now announced that Notepad is getting an update so they can live with line feed only care uh, line I, I, changes.
2: I know. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't decide whether I should be excited or depressed. I mean, should I be depressed <laughs> that it's taken this long or should be excited yeah, right. that it's there? Um I mean, you realize that the cut list for deciding what to announce in a keynote is incredibly hard, right? Yes. I mean they yes. it is you really gotta have some great stuff for you to make the cut list of what gets removed. And they still announce that Notepad has gotta change <laughs> to support character turn line feed. That's. That
0: was quite something. I was amazed yeah. that Notepad had threads. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? It turns out it's the dialogue boxes that are multi-threaded. Yeah, but
2: I, I tweeted about it. I said, you know, what's really amazing is is not just that Notepad did that, but that Kevin felt, you know, Kevin Gallo felt comfortable being humble enough to say, yes, we never supported this, but we do right now. Right, that's a pretty <laughs> significant humility step on his part. Yeah, and then I kept on wondering who on the audience amongst developers right this is this is a future version of what is PDC these are developer targeted people right. who is running notepad
1: right yeah right I mean well and I admit I have a machine in my uh, a VM in my set that runs notepad plus plus because line feed
2: but but you would do it no matter what just to get control Z I mean it's the,
1: yeah it, it's,
2: <laughs> Just to get multiple versions <laughs> of Notepad, so it's mean, right. It's like the first thing you do is Choco install <laughs> Notepad
0: two. I um, <laughs> Notepad plus plus. I use Notepad all the time. <laughs> Anytime I want to convert something from like a rich text format to just regular text, and I no. find that 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 just bugs the hell out of me. That so use
2: there's so there's apps for that, right? I use Ditto. But basically, Control-Shift-P will paste it as plain text. So, there's apps that will go mm-hmm. and convert it. Because I do that all the time, right? You copy from a web page, you paste it into Word. Well, Word, you've got it. But you paste it as, like, you know, an editor or something like that, and you want plain text. And I have to have, you I can do c- Control-P is regular paste, and Control-Shift-P removes it into, and paste it in plain text. Yeah. It's way too much work yeah. to put it in Notepad as well. Right.
1: And goodness knows, don't use the mouse. Paste special. I, I, you know,
2: I've heard there's a thing called a mouse. I'm not <laughs> sure how to use it yet. I haven't figured it out.
1: <laughs> it's a thing that looks like a foot pedal, but if you put it on the floor, everybody thinks you're weird. <laughs> well, I have the eraser head. I'm still one of those uh, Lenovo, oh, IBM oh, people like, that likes to like the eraser guy. head on the keyboard. You like your nub. <laughs> That's right. The That's nub right. thing. Yeah. Reading, reading log files with line feed only. There you go. That's my life. No, <laughs> uh, I, But I super appreciate that it's, it's only when you start doing cross-platform development that you really get reminded what is language, what is framework.
0: Mm.
1: Right,
2: right. I think I think that's I think that's very true. Uh, and we and there's some cases as you know, I'm using I do a fair amount of PowerShell, right, and trying to do PowerShell cross-platform. Mo- yeah. Mostly, we just didn't care about it. But now, if you want to go ahead and write a PowerShell module, you actually have to be conscious of the fact of are you going to run this on on powershell that's cross plat or not uh, and yeah. so you have to be intentional about it because if you go post it into powershell gallery you're expecting that that people can use it from anywhere
1: so yep no and i got to think the linux guys that are willing to take powershell out for a spin are super frustrated because they see all it's like being a vb.net developer searching for samples right you know it's like all this this huge ecosystem of powershell stuff but it was only ever written and tested on windows and uh, and so you've got to do all that culling yourself. That's that's exactly
2: right. I, I did learn and this might seem really obvious to a lot of your listeners, but um, I've obviously we've had Bash for now what two two builds. Um, yeah, a couple of builds. You can go and install Bash on in Windows, uh, and it's a Windows Store app, right? So you can download and install Windows Store app from Bash. You can now install Debian, and you can now install Ubuntu. Uh, those are all available. But what I didn't know was you can go to the command line and type WSQL and suddenly you're at the default Linux command prompt. It's hmm. that easy. I don't have to start Windows, run another app. I can literally just type WSQL and I'm, I mean WSL, excuse me, WSL, and suddenly I have Linux at the command line. Uh, right. And, and I didn't realize... WSL, was so WSL stands for the
1: to. Windows subsystem for Linux.
2: Exactly. Right.
1: Which is what Bash has evolved into.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I always started a new window and, and you know got it up and running and stuff like that by, yeah. by, through that method. But the fact that I can now be in PowerShell and type WSL and suddenly I've got Linux is, is very powerful, especially if, in my, as in my case, I really am writing cross-platform code. So I
1: need to be right. able to step
2: into that environment really quickly.
1: So what are you writing on the Linux side that you don't want to write in the regular PowerShell side or in any other scripting approach?
2: So in my case, it's specifically... So this is an interesting question. In my case, it's specifically Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to write code that is crowd-platform for the book, um, and I want to make sure we can support the full set of of audiences. Uh, The other place where you encounter this is as as you go into sort of microservices, containers kind of world, you're you're starting to, to, to do that a lot more What's, what's interesting to me, and it's an age-old question, is do I actually write my code to be cross-platform from the start? And from an application developer's perspective, I almost want to suggest that the answer is no, that right. when you need a port, that's when you should be cross-platform. From mm-hmm. a library developer's perspective, of course, you need to do it in order to have the most um, surface area for your buyers or for, your, for the users of your library. But from an application perspective, pick the one platform and use that and if you ever get to the point where you need to run on a different platform deal with porting it then don't yeah. do all that work yeah. in the case that you might ever port and discover that in 10 years you never did
1: uh, yeah, no, so it's not worth the pain right the uh, the I did it I did some shows on the run as side about windows subsystem for linux specifically because of uh, what we've really been talking about, that there are great, beautifully crafted scripts running in Linux for figuring out certain things. The same way there's great PowerShell scripts, and you don't want to write your own. The fact that you can take someone else's and just execute it from a Linux command line and get those results, and it gets maintained by someone else, gets cared and fed for by someone else. Writing it yourself just makes no sense. So right. you know you have that option. We I've seen these CI CD pipelines here where they're bopping in and out of PowerShell and WSL because it it's the least amount of code ownership to getting to that CI CD working right
2: mm-hmm. right but it's I, I mentioned again the frustration right I was writing a build script that I wanted to run cross platform and I open up a, an sh file um, in code in in Visual Studio Code actually. And it was in Windows, and when I put a carriage return line feed, it ended up being a Windows carriage return line feed. And then, of course, when I checked it into my CI process, my continuous integration process, and it built, it failed because it didn't realize what to do with this backslash R. And I couldn't right. figure out what I, like, I did. I didn't touch it. I didn't, I didn't do anything. Like, I, it like what <laughs> is the deal? It <laughs> And what was weird is I went back into code. There's no way into code to show what is your char- what is your line feed. And so you can switch it and you can say, okay, now it's all Linux or it's all Windows, but you can't actually see what's in the file. So I had no way of noticing, even with white space turned on, I couldn't tell what it was and my build script was failing and I couldn't see it. Um, So that was, it was a frustrating experience. But again, it's because it's a simple thing. I'm doing cross-plat and I've got to deal with carriage return line feeds.
1: Yep. What's the fix to that? Is it an ability to hover over a file and it'll indicate what its carriage returns are? Is it just everything should simply consume either? Like, well, it's, we it's get a top- into the
2: age old problem with Git, which has a way of handling this on, you know, it uses one on your local machine and a remote one where you put it in the, when you check it into the, re- the repo. Uh, so there's, right. a, there's a, a whole bunch of gymnastics you can choose as to which way you're going to do. And, you know, you sort of have to read a thesis before you can decide what is the default for your particular library to, to address this because it can switch on the fly. Um, right. In my case, I just would love to have visibility. I'd like Visual Studio Code. You got to say, okay, this is this kind versus that kind. You know, if Notepad can handle it, I need it, I need code to handle it as well. That's an exaggeration, yeah. but you understand the point.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, there's no simple answers around all that stuff. And, you, and you're and you literally walking into another class of tabs versus spaces, zero-based or one-based kind of arguments. Sure. Exactly, That's exactly Right years of pain and arguments and and if you don't (laughs) if you're not aware of any of that you walk into it boy you're gonna be sad yeah
2: because if you get it wrong and you make a mistake diagnosing it is really hard because it's like diagnosing white space
1: right yep diagnosing white space is a great description of it so Yeah, I'm just looking on Stack Overflow at all the convert carriage return to new lines and carriage return line feeds and yeah, the arguments persist. Wow, we still have that argument. And we got away from it (laughs) because we just lived in different worlds. Windows did it one way, Linux did it another. But now that we're trying to be friends, uh, we're back to this discussion.
2: Let me mention another place where we see this. I'm in a project right now of trying to implement you know, something for dotnet Core that is sort of the, the one command line parser to real the moral. And here's another place where people are extremely, extremely opinionated. It must be POSIX. You must use a dash, not a slash. You know, it must be oh, dash, my. dash. Oh my goodness. It's People are militaristically opinionated about how you should go ahead and and write your command line parsers and what it should do and not support. Yeah. And, and what I'm wondering is, is this a place where we could defragment the community by allowing support for everything, but allowing people to opt in to only support one. So the default is, it will work, we will parse correctly, whether you use a dash or a slash, but if you want to be opinionated, then you can go ahead and reconfigure it to only be a dash. And so the question, like we're doing sort of um, research and trying to understand what the users are looking for, and the users in this case are programmers, But what if we said, hey, instead of you guessing, oh, with Git, use a dash. You can do dash question mark, but you can't do slash question mark. What if we wrote a library that allowed it to default to just work for the end user? But if you decide to be opinionated, you can. And I sort of want the same thing to happen in the Windows Linux differences with with a new line processing to say, well, what if I tested and I said it will work regardless of whether you have a new line or a carriage return line? Yeah. Can I make it so that nobody has to know or think about it? And you can't always do that, but can I get close?
1: It's almost an option explicit kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, there's a st- there's a standard behavior that blocks if you don't follow one form or another, and then there's an optional behavior that says, I'm, I just want to be friends.
2: <laughs> but I think it should be other, the other way around. I really want to argue that the default is I want to be friends, and if you want right. to be a jerk, then you can go be opinionated.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so that's very much the internet mindset, right? It was like, I'll just consume it. Well, how, whatever way I can. And uh, right. and then they know I want this to be tight. Yep. And so do it only, only accept one way. Exactly. I, exactly. I think that's yep. achievable. So I do
2: want to bring up one more. You asked about the C Sharp stuff that I, I am fascinated by the, the null reference type uh, support that's coming out in C Sharp eight. And, right. and what's interesting to me about that problem is it's existed since C-sharp 1.0. In C-sharp 1.0, yeah. we would pass a variable and would have to do a null check. And I was like, why is there no, quote, attribute that I can put on this reference type that says do not allow nulls? And I've yeah. so desperately wanted since 2000 to be able to support the ability to declare, hey, don't pass me variables that, that are null. And have yeah. the compiler check. I don't need to go write if equals null, then throw an exception. Just do it. Um, and yeah. every single time in the past, I had four lines of code that I didn't need it because I had to do a null check, you know, and then do something or throw an exception based on this. And and yeah. at the end of the day, the C sharp team has said, we couldn't solve this problem. And and my and, and Eric Lippard, who who's um, edited the last version of my book and has co-authored in the past. Was very opinionated about saying it's just not a possible problem to solve. And what's wow. unique about what the C Sharp team is doing now is they're saying we're going to do the best we can, even though we can't do static analysis that is always right. And it's <laughs> very different than what we've what we've you know the way the team has done stuff in the past. If you had a had a uh, you know a compile error, it had to be wrong. And here they're saying no, yeah. well, let's issue a warning saying we're pretty sure, but you could do something that that tricks us Um, so we're pretty sure let's say the way around they're saying we're pretty sure this is safe but you could do something that tricks us
0: yeah yeah right
2: and that's a different attitude than the compiler has done before and I'm curious to see what what developers response is to that to that mindset
0: Mark do you uh, have any uh, thoughts about uh, core 3.0
2: well obviously the most intriguing thing is the fact that that we've gone and said let's put in .NET Core 3.0 windows specific stuff right and that's not entirely obvious to everyone a lot of people when they take a first blush it is it's like oh my goodness we've now got wpf it's cross-platform this is amazing yeah and they're they're true. completely excited and they've completely missed the target
1: yeah, because it's not actually in Core 3, right? It is a separate SDK that you install that's Windows only for this WPF and, and new
2: went for That's exactly right. But because it's under the moniker .NET 3.0, core, I mean, Core.NET 3.0, yeah. .NET Core 3.0, let me get that straight. That's it, the, the message is misleading to people who aren't paying attention, right? Our expectation with .NET Core 2.0 is this is cross-platform and everything that's included is crossplat. Now we've got .NET core 3.0, and we're specifically saying it's got a whole bunch of stuff in it, and some of it, in fact, a significant amount of it, is actually not crossplat. So yeah. it's it's a marketing thing here that's going to cause people who are not paying attention to be disappointed. Yeah. Now I'm not criticizing the name. I'm not saying it was a bad choice. I just think people really need to go in with their eyes open that. .NET Core does not mean cross-plat
1: right. um starting with 3.0. Well, at least for the for the desktop stuff.
2: And it and it really doesn't anyway, right? I could write a library that I say is compiled with.NET Core 3.0, but I make an I make an SDK call or something like that.
1: Yeah. Uh, but, but still the implication is it's cross-plat. Well and you have to wonder if they won't get to a time when they do open source this stuff and it can be made cross-plat. They're just not prepared to do that yet. I clearly, right? It is it is
2: it is An obvious thing for Microsoft to do, I I think the amount of work is Um, non-trivial. And WPF, you know, what Microsoft's doing in .NET 3.0, right, is they're sort of reviving WinForms and WPF and all these libraries. And so then we're back to the choice of, is WPF what I would have thought you know, certainly when WPF came out and for several years afterwards, I'm like, this is the obviously the best thing. I've got a clear separation between UI layers and business logic, and mm, yeah. I, I get to go change. The, I mean, it's just, it's just such a beautiful um, separation of concerns, sort of M- M- MVVM pattern. Mm. But then the complexity of learning WPF, you know, it's a month to get started, right? So, and so that's, you know, I can go teach uh, a, College course and get people programming WinForms in one day. Sure, WPF yep. totally different story, and so yeah. there is still bifurcation in in the developers in terms of what they want, and and it's not clear that the investment of trying to make WPF cross plat will have enough users in the end. Right,
1: one would argue that is Xamarin Forms, right? That that this is already being done in Xamarin Forms, and the alternative is JavaScript, CSS, and is that a better answer? I. This is another thing that I
2: should not have opinions about publicly.
1: We <laughs> <laughs> do write books about C Sharp. I think we know that's, some that's positions.
2: Right. That's right. <laughs> well, right. It's, it, I should have opinions about whether C Sharp should be used as the language to program on the client for JavaScript and interact with DOM. Like we could talk talking about you know talking about that Blazor.
1: Yeah. Uh, right, exactly. And how do you feel about that, Mark?
2: <laughs> I. I think you're, it's very appealing to the .NET programmer, right. but the .NET programmer is struggling with the web because of the com- the complexity of the libraries and the complexity of CSS and HTML um, and JavaScript in the end. Uh, so they're saying, "Well, I can skip the JavaScript. I still, but I still need to learn um, the CSS and HTML and the DOM and all that." And I'm sort of thinking. The people who are experts in web programming are totally content programming with JavaScript or even better TypeScript. They, mm-hmm. Their world is are satisfied. So, who are we targeting when we go right and give you the ability to put C Sharp on the web client?
0: Yeah,
2: I think there is an answer. I, I want to be clear. I think there's an answer. You can do a lot of business processing in the C Sharp layer that's not interacting with the UI. For example, yeah. like there's that's a real that's a there's a real potential space for it. But I think we should be careful in the marketing of what it exactly is. It was surprising to me that a build, there wasn't a session. On Blazor. Right. That was surprising to me.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
2: But I think it's indicative, not that they're not investing or not that they don't think it's important, but they aren't sure what the long-term plans are and what the adoption is going to be and what the community's response is going to be. Uh, I don't yeah. know this
1: fact. Like nobody said this to me, but it was just curious. Well, that they've, but they've said this out loud, Mark. I mean, they've said we're making this, we've moved it under ASP.net, but it's an experimental project. You need to tell us if it makes sense to make it into a normally supported product by using it, embracing it, and pushing on it. So they're, I think they're, they recognize how much work it is to actually make it, what it should be and until people want it they're not going to do it i I think you're right but that in many
2: cases microsoft will go ahead and do talks and try to ramp up energy around something before it's been adopted or wanted because they're trying to they're basically trying to do marketing in this case they did not do any marketing
1: well and i think they're a little afraid of the open web community and they don't want to be seen as somebody attack you know you could interpret blazer as attacking you know javascript I, right. I, I right. almost wonder if they're they're waiting to see if other people move. Like, what happens if we start seeing other languages appearing as WebAssembly? Th- right. Then it would be different.
2: Right. Well, you know, in some ways, I feel like you look at TypeScript. And mm-hmm. when Google decided, yes, we're going to use TypeScript as part of Angular, yeah, that was a huge adoption by the web community to say, we love this. We're totally supportive. Yeah. This is where we should go. Um, and, and the marketing before that was... Well, I think they were still doing a fair amount, but that truly triggered uh, uh, an onslaught of adoption. Yeah, um, sure. So, so when do we see something like that happen and say, yes, we want it so badly? I just can't imagine who's going to adopt it and not just say it's TypeScript is good enough.
1: Yeah, right? no, sure. I think that's a very interesting yeah. question. It is a line we're battling with.
2: And and by the way, I'm not saying I don't like it, right? I'm Obviously, I'm totally in favor. I th- think C Sharp of the languages we have is amazing. I really do. Uh, I just think we're in a world where JavaScript was chosen not because it was best, but because it was pervasive. Mm, and right. and even if we said, hypothetically speaking, even if the community said C sharp is best, but it's not pervasive and then rejected it, we're not we're not getting anywhere.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting times. So, and and that's the thing is WASM opens the door to any language that whose underpinnings are written in C to to show up. So uh, if there's a wave of language and we start seeing more people adopting it, I think it'll continue, but it might just be a niche. Are you, so
2: are you saying, will we see C++, will we see Java in in the client? Is that what you're asking
1: or wondering? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and I'm not so much C++ because, you know, there's, there's already options there, but Java, Go, Swift, like right. those languages, these more contemporary languages – showing up as able to execute in the browser via WebAssembly, that's very interesting and if it gets a wave of interest they the you know therein lies a the question javascript has its problems and it's gotten better there's no two ways about it typescript and all the tooling the thing that's still agonizing in my mind is css <laughs> it's if, if xaml has a shot at being ubiquitous it's because they come up with a better way to style. They have. Bootstrap. CS, CS, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how they <laughs> fix CSS, by taking it away from the average mortal. Yeah, right? exactly. If that's yeah. the answer, is to just protect you from it? Yeah. Is that really the answer? Well, you
0: know, it, I mean, I, it, I see them as different levels, you know? People that people can be very productive with things like Bootstrap without having to yeah. do any styling. And, and then if something doesn't work... Or they want something to be tweaked. Now you got to f- sort of figure out the the nitty gritty details. But I'm amazed at the problems that Bootstrap, in particular, solves. You know, just simple things like centering in a div. Yeah. You know, just things like that that used to drive me absolutely nuts. And I, I was like, oh, for, forget it. I hate CSS. But then yeah. you know, yeah, you just so put it's okay. The right class it hates you it. back. And I
2: think the speed yeah. with which the web is moving which you know bootstrap is an example of really you know if I try to say what is my UI framework for the web you know is it going to be view is it going to be angular I mean I, you know those are those are challenging questions that make web programming really complicated Sure
1: yeah it's true and a, and we're still really only talking about what fits on a screen and is touched typed or moused as the new form factors come into play as it goes onto your head as it goes into voice, like these other environments, I think these a very opinionated approaches to simplifying styling are going to run into a wall and uh, we're going to have disruptive moments.
2: Yeah. I would say that we need a disruptive moment to try figure out how to make web programming simpler. Um, yeah. But mm. I can't see how it's going to happen because right now the speed with which new libraries are created is so fast to try that, that we've become bifurcated, right? We've tried to do multiple different libraries and everyone's choosing one yes. or that one and they're working in different places. We're not centralizing. And so the appeal, I'm not saying it's reality, but the appeal of, of of XAML is to say, hey, can we go and say there is one standard and it's one library and it's one programming model and it's, it's cross-platform and it runs on the client.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think what, one of the reasons you see so much bifurcation, so much fragmentation, is that there is no good answer, and so people are trying things, and that the good answers ultimately emerge. You know, the vo- I feel like the velocity has slowed down in the past few years. Angular pulled out a substantial amount of dominance in the PWA space. Mm-hmm. For you know, there was many more frameworks before it, but after it, it really sort of tapered off. Until you didn- weren't happy with PWAs, you started to see PWAs make no sense. And then the componentization models of things like React have sort of flared up uh, and said, here's a different set of problems that it solves.
2: While I love Angular, I think at the end of the day, you have to have a pretty big app to make it worthwhile.
1: Absolutely.
0: What happens when I want to do something simple, right?
1: Yep. It's just too big
0: of a bite. So right. um, give a, we'll give you a few minutes here to plug your book. Tell us about it, your latest book um well what you mentioned so the latest book comes
2: out on the 18th what is that friday so this is c sharp seven essential c sharp seven uh is available in stores uh whatever that means in the (laughs) world in the year 2018 i'm not sure uh on on friday and obviously what i've done in that one. I don't have anything C Sharp 8.0, but I do have all through C uh, Sharp 7.x, so C Sharp 1, 2.2, 7.3, uh, and covered all the new features that come with C Sharp. Um, if I had to choose one that that probably is the most significant, it would be well, there's two actually. It would be pattern pattern matching and, and tuples. Uh, and so what was interesting about this one, I would say this one had the least updates compared to any of the other additions that I had to do Hmm. Um, and this is now must be the sixth edition, um, of the book. So I've been doing this for a little while. Um, as before I had, um, Eric, um, be a, a technical editor for the, for the book. And so he's continued to do that now. I think this is the fourth time or fifth time. Uh, and so he's continued to be a part of that. And I'm, it's great to have him cause he, he knows the language like few others, And so he really, he really tears my language apart when I use the wrong, you know, wrong terms or something for, for, for what's in, what's in there. Um, It's interesting that what probably the most interesting thing happened was trying to cover .NET Core. So before um, the way you compile the program, you know, I focused on sort of Visual Studio kind of scenario of, of compilation, but with .NET Core, I really needed to switch to say, how do you do Hello World in a .NET Core space? Yeah, And so a significant amount of effort had to, I had to change the way Hello World was done. So chapter one changed, whereas rarely did it have to change in the past. But now we really had to think through, okay, well, I've got an audience of Microsoft developers that are looking for Visual Studio. i got an audience of, of, of Linux developers that are looking for Visual Studio code and .NET Core. How do I appeal across that audience and make sure I can cover um, the gamut of, of, of who's reading? And I'd already been challenged, you know, ever since 1.0 that I can do beginners and I can do more advanced programmers with, we've got advanced sections where we go into IL and things like that. Yeah. But here I had to go compete to cross-platform developers too. I'd done that early on since version 1.0, or version, yeah, the first version with um, Mono, but there's really little point in even mentioning that now. So that was probably the biggest challenge is there were language changes around the pattern matching and around tuples, but the real problem was trying to figure out how to make this to be able to support cross-platform for development. And and that changed how the world was done. Do I start with Visual Studio New or do I go to the command line
0: and type, you know, .dotnet New Library? What right. do I do? Right. Yeah. Big changes are afoot. It's uh, an exciting time. I, I We always say this when things change and they move forward, but it really is an exciting time for .dotnet. If you think about the silence that we
2: had and how long
0: it went on for. Yeah. And now this
2: incredible revival and, and the fact that we do have something like .NET Core, it's it's truly amazing. And it is a great I feel like it's a great time to develop be a developer. And although it's complex for us trying to describe it and teach about it and talk about it, at the end of the day, I think development is getting simpler. You know, I can't yet say to hey Alexa write a library for me. I'm not I'm not at that point. Right. But but I do think our developer is getting simpler and good practices like unit testing, um, and, and automation and CI C D kinds of scenarios, that's all getting better uh, in a way that's making the quality of what we're producing way higher. Yep,
0: agreed. For sure. Well thanks Mark. It's been a pleasure talking to you and keep doing what you do. You're awesome. Thanks guys. It's great to talk to you and look forward to seeing you again in another R D event. Absolutely. You bet. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by POP Studios Now go write some code. See you next time.
1: Got a transmitter
0: band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a